I'm Ryan Bryson with Bryson Wildlife, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. My son Jonas, my five-year-old son Jonas, has an orange, a blaze orange koozie. Now, you might be questioning my parenting uh, uh, techniques here by allowing my five-year-old to be carrying around a koozie. I can assure you it is only a seltzer or a can of pop that he is uh, carrying around. But whenever he sneaks a seltzer or a pop out of the refrigerator, he goes straight for that orange koozie. And uh, then, you know, of course, me being his pushover dad, I see how cute it is. He's walking around with this little uh, this little drink in his koozie. And, he, you know, he's five. He can't open the thing yet himself. So uh, his way of asking for permission is with his, uh, you know, little five-year-old eyes walking up to me and saying, Daddy, will you open this for me? And how can I ever say no? And uh, if there's anyone to really blame for my kid's pop or seltzer consumption it's the guy on the other end of the table and the other end of this podcast mr ryan bryson from bryson wildlife and land management down in kind of southwest iowa not super far west but definitely in the southwestern part of the state and uh i met ryan at uh the iowa deer classic an event that if you are any kind of an outdoors person you should definitely go to at some point it's a really cool event that uh, is held every year in des moines my only beef with uh the deer classic which is an interesting phrase you're only venison my only venison yeah you're only venison (laughs) (laughs) with the very good nicholas my only venison with the iowa deer classic is that it is always held during like prime shed hunting time you know what i mean it's like the time of year that the first weekend of march you know it's like you're kind of like hitting your you're getting up to the peak antler drop time at that point and uh now you got to choose do i go to the do I go to the Deer Classic for like five hours on a Saturday, wandering around, checking everything out, or do I go looking for deer antlers? Uh, so, I don't know. The, the, my complaint needs to get thrown out there into the <laughs> the white noise, I guess, and uh, someone needs to, to reschedule that. But while I was there, I was walking around, and here's this guy with this really cool uh, deer rack sitting on his uh, table, his display table. And all these blaze orange koozies. And it was Ryan. He saw Jonas with me, handed Jonas that koozie. And now Jonas is a big fan of Ryan. So uh, it's it's a very special privilege for Nicholas and I to be here tonight. Uh, we, we got Ryan to meet us along our way back from another podcast we did earlier today. And uh, uh, Ryan uh, bailed us out for a few extra hours of driving. He came and met us. We're very thankful to him. Uh, but we're super excited to talk to him because he works within a space that is a very important part of what we do at Hoxie Native Seeds, and that is work with people who want to intentionally manage their property, uh, not just for their hunting purposes, but because they love the wildlife that live there as well. And Ryan works with these people for a living, and he give, he comes up with uh, habitat plans for them and uh, does in some cases the work for him to get to get the property in the right condition, and so uh, Ryan, thank you so much for lending some of your very valuable time to us this evening to come and talk on the Prairie Farm Podcast. Oh man, absolutely pleasure is all mine to be here and be able to sit down and talk to you guys, some like minded people that are uh, wanting a better conservation for the future generations. So it's my pleasure to be here, guys. Oh man, for sure. We, we feel uh, very lucky to have you on the show and, uh, um, did you bring any koozies with you? I brought some business cards. How's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That just, that I'm just actually got, fresh out of koozies. I got some t-shirts coming in a couple of weeks. I'll make sure to get some, you guys some t-shirts. There, hey, we'll we'll we, mail we, swap you a half. Yeah, uh, right, perfect. Yeah, there perfect. We go. There we go. Yeah. Business cards instead of koozies. Definitely adulting right now. <laughs> that is, that is, uh, that is uh, a good, a good, uh, funny thing there but so uh right right off the bat here uh nicholas and i thought it'd be kind of fun to do a little bit of a competition between you and nicholas so nicholas is i'm gonna get smoked if it's <laughs> made, of, made of grass wise <laughs> well no i think this is in your wheelhouse here ryan so N- nicholas has the experience of working with uh essentially people that would be similar to your clientele 
where yet we have people call in uh, quite frequently, really, asking for um, grass for their hunting property, or or you know just 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 what our recommendation would be for them to plant. And so uh, we thought it'd be kind of uh, fun to do a, a like a you know trade back and forth where each of you name a species that you have a customer ask for to go oh onto gosh. their property, or that you just know a hunter is going to want. So uh, oh, Ryan, no. we'll we'll give you since we're surprising you the most here, we'll give you the. Uh, is this like a one-upper conversation? Yeah, or basically trying to come up. Okay, yeah, whoever right. has the last word essentially. So we're gonna go back and forth. So you say one species that hunters often want on their their hunting property and then nicholas will say a species all and right. back to ryan i'm gonna start with the easy one to switch grass there you go <laughs> switch grass off the board nicholas you know, we're in the middle of making a youtube video of the three stereotypes of uh of um mix makers yeah you've got the economist who puts the cheapest stuff in you've got the ecologist who puts the most expensive, prettiest, best for the environment stuff. And then you've got the hunter who has eight different kinds of candle switchgrass, and that's it. So, <laughs> just, <laughs> um, okay, he said switchgrass, which basically covers like 10 of the species that... I well, took the you, biggest if, one if, off the board. Yeah, well, if you got like a... If you have a... a I'll go Indian grass. Okay. I like the Indian Good. grass. Good, Indian grass off the board. Oh, I'm going to go with little blue. Little blue, that's go, a good that little one. ground cover there. Side oats grama, similar to little blue. I have planted bird's foot trefoil before. Pulling all the aces right uh, out of his pocket. Can I say one that they ask to not put in regularly? Does that count? Not yet. <laughs> oh. Um, well, I then I'll go big blue. There, I was going to say, no, there's, there's, okay. there's got to be a big, right? I might be wrong on the name, but isn't there one? I think I planted it a couple of years ago. Versagrass. Versagrass. Mm, I'm not mm, sure. See, I might, you know, I might you know have what? just lost right there. I have, I have the internet right now, right in front of me. We want to give a it? shout out to Country Inn for letting us record a podcast <laughs> yes. in their restaurant and use their internet. Versagrass. Versa. V-E-R-S-A. That sounds familiar, but Ooh. I think it might not be native. Uh, a top hit is Bursa grass seed. Maybe it's Bursa. I can say things, CRP but I can't read. seed mixes and native seeds. Ah, uh, uh, there we yes. go. Yes, I got to come up with another yes, one. Yes, we oh, got one. Oh, I got one. I got one. Rough drop seed. Pheasants <clears throat> love that stuff. I haven't heard of that one. Done. That one is shorter right now, but it's not as bunchy as little sure. blue inside. Yeah, and birds um, love the seeds. Um, and so do insects. And really? some of their insects, you got. I'll have to look into that one. Yeah, it's and if you're putting, if you're ma- using it to make mixes, it's it's really economic, but still a good. It's not low quality. It's just easier to grow. Do they so do any plantings of that, like up in uh, South Dakotas and like shelter belts or anything? Of just rough drop seed, probably not. No. But uh, yeah, they they might do like just mixes. sand drop seed. Okay. Um, but sand drop seeds like really short it's almost like yard grass short oh sure yeah uh, really cheap okay i might have i might have something to add here on the bursa so i think it's called shepherd's purse yeah bursa is a part of its uh um scientific name i think isn't that a weed i say i thought shepherd's purse was a weed capsella bursa pastoris known as shepherd's purse that might be the I mean, that's a long sure scientific name. Like <laughs> that's, that's all I'm coming up with here, right? Hey, so weed's I mean, only something that's in the wrong spot. That's true. You put it there. It's not a weed. That's right. Yeah. Well, corn's a weed in the wrong because spot. Because you're our guest, we'll let you get away with <laughs> yeah. it. I don't, I, I mean, uh, and Ryan's good at what he does. So I that's right. You. That's right. <laughs> I trust you. Are there any others that they ask for? 
I'm trying to think of a flower. I don't think I've ever had a hunter ask for a specific flower. Oh, so I, for- yeah. So I just got done planting a bunch of uh, pollinator mixes for some uh, stuff. So like a black-eyed Susan, purple yeah, cone flower awesome. stuff loaded up. They're really pretty blooming species. Oh, yeah. yeah. The ones that, yeah, black-eyed Susan are nice because they, they come in strong. Absolutely. So when you're doing CRP, farmers are like, wow, it's working. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like the easiest thing. I like grow. to see those cone flowers out there, though. Oh, yeah. yeah those great. are my cone favorite. Flower, yes. Sweet black-eyed Susan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Love that. Yeah. Pale purple cone flowers are yes. farm's favorite yes what are the ones i can't remember the name um but they're orange and you see them they're not a cone flower but you see them butterfly milkweed no are no sure? the, it, i know oh, a butterfly milkweed are they tiger lilies it might be tiger lilies yeah. those are all yeah. there's only two they're all blooming right now. right now it's yeah tiger lilies they're blooming all over the ditches right now yep. 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 yep and i think those might actually technically be non-native to iowa but i'm not positive on that. so it's funny you kind of say this uh how we were talking a little bit earlier how the native species kind of gets in your blood a little bit mm-hmm. so i think i've got my wife kind of on board with that so we're uh that's one thing we just planted uh, some native species we just set a flagpole and planted some native species in the front now when she's starting to see some of these wildflowers like out in the crp like she's got the eye for it now you know yeah. well, what's those well how would those look over here you know what about that so yeah it's cool yeah, yeah. yeah. imagine yeah. landscaping where you don't have to replant every year <laughs> oh absolutely yeah. yes. yep. so all kinds of good species mentioned there ryan you have the experience of i suppose probably in a way i mean well let's ask you this how how have you handled that in the past with like you know getting seed for your clients is that something that that you've kind of almost you know been the middleman for hey i'll buy it you pay me for at cost or do you do you kind of treat that almost as a part of your business where where uh you know i'll order it for you but you know you're gonna there's gonna be a little bump for my time and energy and tracking it down for you i know your your business is kind of moving in that direction now where you're gonna people are gonna be able to buy seed through you and um and do that or uh do do customers just kind of tell you hey you know you know what needs to go in here go ahead and get what you need and tell me that what the damage is at the (laughs) at the end of the day Sure, you know, so everything's, it's a, I would say it's a mixed bag of everything, sure. you know, um, like we kind of talked a little bit before, you have a lot of people that I like to help in the area of, of people that own farms, you know, but they don't know what, what needs done or what the best practice right. is. So I feel like that's a strength of area where my business has really been able to help out and help people grow their farms um, if they want to grow them, you know, if they've got goals that they want to build on the farm um, and grow towards those goals um i think yeah the seed side of things you know those are things i kind of uh, just sell as a service through the business you know sure. um i offer uh, you know you can come buy the seed if you like from me or you can, you know you know you need a turnkey service those are things that we also provide so that's awesome yeah, that's really great yeah so we of course you know we provide seed too with through our presenting sponsor of this podcast, Hoxie Native Seeds. And uh, if you're listening in and you are a hunter, two great resources there. Uh, come to us. We have the seed and the know-how for for what you need to do to get the seed down yourself. Or if you're looking for somebody who's going to actually – and we do plant as well um, in the spring, and, and we do frost seeding in the fall. Uh, that is a, a service we offer through Hoxie. But uh, if you're looking for maybe someone to like intensively manage your property, you're going to want to go to a guy like Ryan who's, who's um, there doing that on a, on a daily basis. And that brings me to our next question. So uh, what, what's been interesting about the work that Ryan does, and Ryan could probably roll his eyes at this and give us a million examples here, but I would say that this aspect of the hunting lifestyle has taken off like wildfire in the last five years, really intensively. And it probably I'm, I'm new enough to that space that maybe it's been going on longer than that already. Um, but there's just been some really heavy hitter communicators in the hunting industry that I think have increased that thought process for hunters of, Oh, you know, this is my hunting property. Isn't just a place that I go to three times a year. And, and, uh, you know, if the deer are there, great. If they're not, well, that's hunting, you know, Hmm. people are wanting to pull more levers, have more control over their experience. And they've learned that the way to do so is through property management. you know, guys like, uh, uh, Grant Woods and, and, uh, um, 
Skip Sly and and so forth have uh, even you know for a longer time. Uh, I believe his name is Stan Potts, right? Yep. yep. And he's a Iowa guy, and these guys have been preaching property management for a long time. But that message has finally started to sink in. I think for a lot of of property owning hunters and. So then what happens when a bunch of people jump on the bus is all you get all these buzzwords that everybody says all the time, right? And we could probably almost do another one of these uh these back and forth games of all right, let's let's use a, a land management buzzword that every hunter says all the time, right? <laughs> and uh we could use words like uh carrying capacity, um, habitat, hinge cut. Uh, um, pressure <laughs> pressure yes. yeah yes. yep we could use all those terms over and, and over again but one that would come up probably the most often food plot just need some food plots man that's right yeah and, yep. and uh, every uh, land manager will tell you that the food plot is kind of the the finishing touches on the on the bigger project right you got to have the habitat to match the food plot. So let's talk a little bit about food plots and let's maybe first um, explain that idea of, of having the habitat first mm-hmm. and what kinds of things you do that, and, and we should say this, I believe most of what what your customers are looking for is uh, helping out white-tailed deer presence on their property. However, there's other species that benefit from that. So maybe you can address that part yeah, first. absolutely. The other species, yeah, 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 just how how it how it benefits the whole picture on that property. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you know, when people, I think at a at a focus point, you see the hunting industry now. It's you know, killing, being able to harvest a Boone and Crockett animal, right? That's mm-hmm. the only focus point, and yeah. what the what the industry is. And you know, nine times out of ten, when you're watching, uh, whether it's on YouTube or TV shows, you're you're seeing these beautiful food plots, all these deer moving around through the property. Mm-hmm. And, um, you see normally the personality on the show harvesting that animal, but you know, what you don't see is the development and the backstory on some of these properties. Um, you know, when I first started got, um, hunting, um, bow hunting specifically when I was about, uh, 18, I was 17 or 18. I can't remember exactly. Um, you know, I thought, well, I just, I need a, I had permission, I think to put in like an acre, acre and a half food plot. And then, you know, why I need this great big. Uh, food plot that's because that's mm-hmm. what tv tells me that's what i need right um <clears throat> so it took a, a couple years of failure really to figure out that uh you know the food plot game isn't isn't everything on a property i mean if i if i strictly just sold food plots to my clients i mean i'd be i'd be a lot better off in the <laughs> in the in the checkbook area than what i am right now you know cause there's a lot of uh, expenditures that go into putting in a food plot um, but really you have to look at what's the overall best case scenario for the property. I mean, uh, there's a couple properties that I take care of that, you know, are several hundred acres in size, but we have sure. so much native food and surrounding food that our property might need to serve different purposes. Um, mm-hmm. so we have opportunities for food plots everywhere. Um, but don't think just because you see, uh, and nothing against those guys like Mark Dury or like Lakowski, mm-hmm. you know, any of the big names just because they've kill a uh, 200 inch deer like they do every day over mm-hmm. a five acre food plot that that's what's right for your farm right. um you know there's so many things from a you know i when i look at farms i like to set them up from a multi-species aspect you know what's our what's our turkey population like what's mm-hmm. our pheasant quail population what's our deer population uh what's what's ways can we improve the whole farm ecosystem on mm-hmm. the farm you yeah, know even non-game species right absolutely well and that's you know uh when I talk to uh, clients that really, they love turkey hunting or they love pheasants, they love quail, you know, what we're doing is we're planting a lot of, uh, you know, legume species like alpha, alfalfa or clover. Because not only are they, the, the reason you see those birds and they're feeding so much because those uh, uh, food plots are full of insects. Mm. So they're in there eating all the insects on them. I mean, that's some of the most awesome things. I think, you know, you hate walking through a knee-high clover field. That's a, uh, bugs going everywhere. Yeah. But man, if you're a pheasant or quail, especially oh, yeah. right after you mow that yeah. clover, oh, there's, there's insects everywhere. And that's a heyday, especially for those cubbies of quail trying to survive in the summer. Oh, yeah. yeah, They actually, this past year for uh crp there was some there's something called a quail habitat yes Um, yes and so normally quail habitat was a short grass mix and then they'd have a food plot of oats or Mm -hmm. sunflowers or something nearby 
Well, they just changed it to where it actually now has to be a pollinator yes. mix for the food plot, which yeah. I thought was brilliant because a lot of times people are putting in oats and it's a 10-year contract. Yeah. And hmm. and then the next year there's no oats. You know, it's just a weed well, patch. You, you look at, yeah, you look at the, the, the species of quail to begin with. I mean, if you think of a pollinator mix, you have so you have a lower stem count, right? But everything's more open at the ground level. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. those quail are able to move. They're, well, they're not able to move through our, some of our thicker native grasses, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, when you get those good pollinator mixes, you know, those young quails, they can survive and move through there and pick the insects off the ground. Yeah. So it's absolutely great habitat for the quail yeah. to thrive in. Yeah. And I think that's a hidden value here. You know, um, we Nicholas and I have addressed the the hunting issue and, and we understand that listeners right now may not be hunters themselves and may may not know where they stand on the issue of hunting. And we hope that you... Uh, you know, look into that more deeply. I think what you'll find is true with rings true with what Ryan's talking about here. It's more there's more to the goal than just oh, give me more targets to shoot at. It's to create a healthier ecosystem. And and uh, when you do start branching out into like the pollinator side, you're really addressing a very serious problem that uh, is is at the forefront of the battle for better conservation of our natural resources here in in ag land right all across the midwest and and even out into uh, some of the western states as well where um, we've just seen this decimation of that type of habitat well this is one way that we're getting it back you know crp certainly is one of those ways it's been a very effective way to preserve some ground and to uh, uh, you know help kind of slow down the bleed so to speak but this is another way too um Mm -hmm. uh, hunters that are wanting to manage these properties and putting in uh these resources for the the critters that call it home who have to make a living there so yeah i think i think that's awesome we were just speaking with uh a gentleman named ted cook uh which if you haven't listened to the episode go and listen to it because it is awesome and he dynamite talked a lot about um he is the i don't know the ceo or yep. of uh, the northern north uh, american north grouse partnership thank you thank you and um the the big thing he talked about is 95 percent of the remaining habitat are private owners mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and uh and whether it is crp or another program but it needs to make sense for right. the landowners. Well, I think, yeah, it. I think you look at it from an industry standpoint. Um, you think about how hard the hunting industry sells being a hunter, mm-hmm. but no one sells. I mean, th- they do, but how hard is being a conservationist sold to us? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, mm-hmm. and that's what we really need more of. You know, if we want the, the, what we're able to, the success we have now, if we want that to continue on for generations to go forward, there need to become more conservationists in the world. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I really strive on and becoming. Yeah, yeah. that's been, the, honestly, that's been the best benefit of that boom that I was talking about that's taken place in the hunting community over the last five years is that people are becoming educated and they aren't just hunters anymore. They are conservationists. And, uh, that's where the rubber meets the road is where Ryan's doing his work. He's, he's working for not only hunters, he's working for conservationists who, who want to, uh, help, help solve the problem. And, uh, I think it's, it's super important. Okay. That being said, so we're, we're still on this food plot idea. Okay. And Nick, correct me if I'm wrong here, because you know the <laughs> legal side of CRP better than me. And maybe I'm happy Ryan to do that. on this. Um, food plots are one of the ways a landowner can use their CRP acres. As in, so so within CRP, you your CRP acres, you essentially can't touch them for a window of time each year. I believe it's May 15th through August 15th. Mm-hmm. Is that sounding right to you? Nesting season. The nesting yep, season. Nesting season yeah. for, for uh, pheasants and quail. Okay. And one of the ways landowners can get around that, I think, is if they, if they specifically put some of that CRP ground into food, right? 
into into a food plot that's been approved through the NRCS office. Is that correct? Or maybe it's not part of that. Maybe it's another program. I don't know. Nick's giving me this blank look. He's going to have to edit this I think what you're saying is food plot is about the only thing that farmers can go in in the contract and adjust or plant on or, you know, farm for lack of a better word. Right, right. It's it's ground that's accessible to them technically year round, right? They can, because if it's food, you got to spray it on occasion or weed it or, mm-hmm. or whatever to help it come up each year. And you got to replant each year. Yeah, I think they do have restrictions on what you can do with your food plot. And most programs I work with, so I know some CRP programs you cannot have any food plots in. Mm-hmm. And then yep. other programs you can uh, do up to 10%. So say you got an 80 mm-hmm. acre CRP field, you can put in eight acres of a food plot. I know I have worked with some other of the uh, NRCS agents before about uh, some different uh, like shrub planting or tree plantings before and sure. I think the, yeah. I think the concert I think the NRCS and the government you know if they know that you're trying to improve the land and that's your main goal you know that you know you're you're going at it with good intent you have a lot better luck um, with doing what the things you want to do by the book oh, rather yeah. than just uh, asking doing first and asking right. for forgiveness later and risk losing your payment yeah right, right. yeah and Maybe uh, you should all fact check on me and send all the hate mail to Nick Nicholas. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's spelled it's, so it's Nicholas at dot uh, at gmail dot com, but Nicholas is spelled K E N T. So no, I, and, and even if it's not within the CRP program, which is a pretty, that one took me a, a minute. Pretty, <laughs> a pretty specific program. There are other programs that I do know have existed in the past. I think maybe Iowa Reap. Might be yeah. one of them that has a food plot access program that you can set up. But point being there, food plots do add some diversity as far as what you're allowed to do with your property. It gives you a little bit more. And, and the point of them doing that is so that people are more willing to maximize those acres for conservation's sake, right? Um, instead of just having a mud path through your timber, well, maybe you could put it into some some uh, some type of approved food pl- food food plots species or varieties, and yes, you're gonna have you know tire tracks running through the middle of that. But on both sides of those tire tracks, you're gonna also have a lot of food there too. And so uh, I know I I know there have been some programs like that. I don't know if they got renewed recently or not. But do you guys have very many IHAP programs over in your? <laughs> there in are some. State, there huh? are some IHAP. Uh, uh, properties. I don't. I haven't looked at it in a while to see how many landowners have enrolled in that. But yeah, that's another way where people can get some help with. I tell you what, if you're a landowner and you want to do better, um, you want to kind of give back to the conservation side of it while still being able to own your ground. That's an outstanding program that uh, mm. the DNR. The manages to uh, you know it basically you enroll it for a set amount of years and you know it goes into a uh, a CRP program but a lot of times it allows for food plots on it and that has been some of the uh, some of the best public hunting that I've got the chance to hunt in Iowa is some of those IHAP program farms. Sure. Yeah, it's almost like a so the Western version of it is the block management program uh, where landowners can basically say hey, yeah I'll allow public to to access my ground for hunting purposes. And uh, I believe there's some money that is freed up for those landowners for property maintenance um, as, you know, kind of a thank you for being so generous. Uh, but it also, that helps conservation. You know, we, we firmly believe that, that managing wildlife populations through hunting is a critically important part of the conservation, um, uh, you know, ethic plan. And, uh, so allowing people to access more than just the public areas, you know, wildlife need managed on private ground too. And, uh, uh, that's another, we've talked about before. That's another risk of having such huge, um, uh, land tied up into such huge farming operations where you have one person controlling so much ground, then the wildlife on that property cannot, you know, be managed as, as effectively. So IHAP can be a good program for that as well. Next thing I want to talk about with 
food plots. When we bring food plots in with prairie, and it's what's interesting is Nicholas and I, we, we spent the day earlier today interviewing uh, Taylor Keene from Sacred Seed. We just had a fantastic time talking with him. And Nicholas asked a really good question right before we left. And, um, I don't know, I think it was while we were eating lunch. Uh, he asked, how did that work to farm uh, in the a very specific way that indigenous people were farming uh, that was that was uh, you know well known within the Omaha tribe. How did that work as you were basically cutting out some farm space within the prairie? And uh, uh, so we're kind of taking that idea here and saying, okay, Ryan, most people are probably going to ask for some kind of like grain or legume or or maybe even like a, a turnip or a brassica or something like that to, to put in their food plots. You ever have anybody ask for any kind of like prairie species that would go like a grass or something like that that would go into their food plot? You know, I've never had anybody ask specifically um, for that, but I know that is a practice that I can't kind of have begun practicing on oh, my farm cool. that I manage. You know, um, I'm big on the native species. I mean, using the food that yeah. is here already that, you know, deer survived, all wildlife survived for a long time yeah. before a food plot was a food plot, right? <laughs> a long, so, yeah, a long time before food plot was a buzzword. <laughs> so, and I, and I think that's, you know, one thing that, you know, we'll go back to the hunting industry conversation a little bit about, um, that I think is extremely overlooked on a property that, you know, I've gone to some uh, clients farms that I've went and done a co consultation on to look at putting some food plots on. And uh, a lot of the customer, the client says, I want to have a food plot right here. And I'm looking at this beautiful blend of pollinators and all these native foods. There's a bunch of uh, mulberries and wild berries growing everywhere at ground level. It's like, and I've kind of upset a few customers, I think, a couple times until I, they realized what I was talking about. And I said, you know, actually, we want to leave this area alone because we've got this bedding diversity right over mm. here. Well, with all this food diversity, we have a, a food plot right here that's serving a much longer length of time than mm. what the uh, – because you have different species in there maturing at different periods throughout the year. So we have a yeah. much longer a natural food plot compared to if we were to spray off and turn all that dirt under – um, yeah. a food plot that's really only going to serve a purpose for maybe two months out of the year. Right. Now, there's ways to incorporate um, other food sources within those that's not harming the native species. That's extremely beneficial. Um, but those are just, yeah, those are some things to look at that I find very interesting, like you mentioned. Yeah, that's that's good to see. And and I like how you you start out your answer. And that, that appeals to the natural reality of what deer have been doing for a long time. You know, deer... When we think of deer hunting, most people are looking, you know, casual deer hunters are going to find a place to put a tree stand uh, next to an ag field, right? But deer, uh, long before, you know, corn was widely used on the landscape, they were surviving eating tree leaves and branches yes. and, and, you know, Whatever is blooming at that point right. in the year, yes, right. They they were they were browsers, and and uh, so having those native species there, I think you get more bang for your buck. Kind of like as Ryan was describing, you know, those different blooming periods where uh, you're not just creating something that's going to shoot up, get hammered really hard, and then uh, leave. I had a, I I I heard a guy, really smart guy who's also in the working in the same space as Ryan with property management for hunters. And that would be uh, Mr. Chase Burns and uh, Chase described it as having a Super Bowl party at your house. And uh, he said, imagine, you know, if you uh, set all this food out on a table and just let as, you know, people just kind of follow the food, you know, almost like picture going into a, a men's, dorm like a college dorm you know you got like a bunch of like freshmen and sophomore uh guys running around this place and uh just like open the doors to your your room and you had all these like nachos and and you know whatever party food sitting there on the table and you you'd suddenly have like 30 guys converge on your room right and they'd quick eat all the food and then would they stick around to watch the game 
No, they're freshmen in college. They'd wander off and go find the next room that's got yep. all the food, right? And so uh, that can be the problem when when people want to do that, I guess you could say, unnatural way of feeding the deer on their property and putting in a, a regular crop in place of some of those native species, <clears throat> some of those native species that could already be growing there. And everything comes up at once, everything leaves at once, and so do the deer. So there's a lot of benefits there in doing what what Ryan said. So I I like that a lot. If you had to pick for the rest of your career, you were allowed to plant three species in food plots. You could mix them or plant plant them uh, monolithically. What would you pick? I know I'm kind of putting you in a situation you don't like (laughs) those as much. So the number one is going to be rye. Winter okay. rye, yeah. Winter rye. The the benefits it provides as a you you can use it as a cover crop, mm-hmm. um, for your spring planted food plots. But the the length of time it stays green throughout mm-hmm. the winter. Um, if you have a green food source in the dead of winter, and you have say you have an acre of winter rye, and you have an acre of standing soybeans, I'm sitting in that winter rye plot in January mm-hmm. 10th, the last day of muzzleloader season. those those deer are going to come to that green food source they're going to go to the soybeans as well but they're going to hit that green food source first because it has um has water in it right so deer get a lot of all wildlife get a lot of their water intake from the plants that they eat so Mm -hmm. if you have a green food source in the dead of winter it's got water in it sure so winter rye would be number one uh gosh number two Number two, I would have to just say anything in the brassica family. I mean, brassica plays such an important role for not only feeding deer, but what it does for the, what it can do for our food plots, um, the health of the soil in our food plots. Um, mm. And I go a little more in depth than what some people think, you know, a food plot and what um, the the ecosystem of the soil is like. But, you know, if you really, you can get out of spending a lot of money um, and synthetic fertilizer and everything after, mm. you know, a couple of years, oh, yeah. if you yeah. get in a good food plot rotation. And, yeah. and sorry, just for uh, some of our listeners, what are some of the species you'd take out of that family? Uh, so like you, you'd go, you could go with a tillage radish, um, a, a purple top turnip, uh, you go with rapeseed. Uh, rapeseed doesn't pr- put a bulb on it for say, but it has a very big leafy head. So a lot of, a lot of, uh, top growth vegetation be eaten during october november that's typically when you see those uh, pretty pictures of deer taking those big bucks eating the big leafy yeah, green head yeah. yeah and then so yeah anything really in that brassica family that uh is going to produce a big green head or a, a good root system to it then man sure. number three I'd, i'm gonna have to say clover i mean yeah. the, the the benefits of clover not just for deer but for all wildlife on the farm i mean some of the some of my best areas on my farm are just little you know half and it's not my farm i shouldn't say that but uh some of the best areas of the farm are just where we got clover put in you know because anything it clover is such a multi-species beneficiary that it's it's unreal yeah. so yeah they're they're frowned upon a little bit in crp mixes because they're an introduced uh for technically yeah. but uh we've Gone That's, to the NRCS directly and said, "Hey, do you mind if we put some of this in the mix? Because this is what the farmer wants with yeah. it. It's actually going to be really great for the wildlife." And oh uh, yeah, I mean, you look yeah. at clover, those CRP fields. You know, especially you know Father's Day weekend, you really start seeing all the uh, wild oh, yeah. clover coming through. That's outstanding food yeah, for all the beautiful. wildlife out there. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. I think the government is actually, I've, I know I've got a, a project coming up this winter of interseeding medium red clover into oh. some CRP grass. Good. So, yeah, yeah that's it's going to provide a lot of benefits to the farm. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, that's cool. And we've talked about it before. You know, you might be thinking to yourself like, whoa, introduce species there, Nicholas. What do you mean by that? Something that uh, uh, isn't, isn't uh, native here necessarily. Well, that could be true, but remember, we've had this conversation before where Iowa is so different from what it once was that, yeah, it's really great to want to promote native uh, species when you can, but if it came down to somebody who said, the reason I bought this farm was to, to use it to bring in more wildlife, and I think that this thing is going to bring in more wildlife and they're going to put that down instead of more uh, monoculture from uh, crops and truly create more habitat and more food. 
That's a better. That's a win. What's your guys' favorite non-native species? Oh, favorite non-native. That's a like that's non-native a, to Iowa. Yeah, we'll go. Uh, well, yeah, say the Midwest. Let's say. Oh man, oh, that's a good question. Oh no, I. We just interviewed a lady last week who's incredible. Her name is Laura. Walters. I can tell you what my most hated non-native is. Yeah, Reed canary grass are you oh, serious I hate that's my favorite really? <laughs> yes you yeah like, really? it's so hard to control it is it's extreme reese canary grass yeah it's not a native it's extremely oh, yeah. invasive but you think about the the habitat it provides yeah. like in waterways and stuff for mm-hmm. those pheasants to survive yeah. in during the winter it's the great winter. for it's great for animal kingdom wildlife it's pretty terrible for plant wildlife. It's, yes, uh, yeah, it's it, rough it, on them. Yeah, it, it it'll be the only thing growing in that area. Yeah, oh, yeah, it, it's, yeah. But the, the other thing I don't like about reed canary is it lays down pretty bad in the winter time. It does. And, and but man, so if you if you got a if you got a pointer for a bird dog <laughs> and you're hunting in some frozen reed canary grass, yeah, that is probably one of my, you know, top five every time favorite flushes oh, you can have is a pointer and a reeds canary grass and that rooster that's tucked cool. underneath there oh that's absolutely have you had any issues um dog hunting wise with uh, canada wild dry i haven't not you have, not have, have you heard of, of hunters having issues with their dogs I've, it like I've, gets in their nose yeah i've heard a little bit of it. i mean i've seen yeah some of the pictures where it's stuck clear up their nose I mean, yeah it looks terrible yeah it's not we there's um a gentleman um jack bensing owns mm-hmm. bensing farms mm-hmm. you ever heard of that mm-hmm um he so we sell him seed every year and, and he uh one of their things is there's never any rye don't ever want to put any and virginia wild dry isn't going to do the same thing um silky or hairy wild dry isn't going to sure. do the same thing but it's got wild dry in the name and uh, we just want you know we want to make them feel comfortable with their dogs being out there uh, but I've never, I've never seen a dog with it. You know, that I've heard they get infections, but I've heard. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think the stem is really hard. I mean, it's about, oh, you know, it's yeah. kind of like a dagger to yeah. them if they get it, you know, up the nose or in the eye. I have seen some pictures. I have been fortunate. I've never had any issues with it, but, uh, as my life has progressed, I don't get to do near as much bird hunt in the last couple of years <laughs> as, I, as I want to Got a wedding and a baby and all those yep. fun things, yep. you know, so all the cool. No, things. that's, yeah, that's. I don't know what my favorite non-native would be. I mean, that's a that's a good question. You know, I feel I feel very. I don't know. I feel like this is a dangerous thing to confess here, but I kind of like multi-floral rose. Um, the reason I kind of okay. like that is that is some thick, nasty ground cover that I think keeps deer safe from predators. Uh, you you just can't be a coyote running. You can't be anything charging blindly. Through, through. It keeps all wildlife safe from predators, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can't just go charging through a thing of, of multi-floral rows. It, you, you will come out on the other side of that weighing less than you did going into the front of it because you just left half your body on those stems <laughs> so that's yeah. funny you say that one because i actually had i just got done setting up a i got done setting up a rabbit hunting farm oh like, really uh, that's cool i got i got the food plot planted i shouldn't say i set it up as much but i kind of gave some opinions and advice on it but uh yeah it was the ground there's a cemetery right in the middle of it um it's got big pockets of eastern red cedar and then multiflora rose everywhere and then we planted mm-hmm. a, a grain sorghum kind of in some different spots throughout the farm by design and uh so i met this guy because i participate in a rabbit hunting tournament every year that's cool and uh yeah he's uh he runs beagles and everything so i'm really excited to see the results on this because yeah. i you know obviously you see rabbits in multiflora rose and yeah. i kind of when i first rolled up to the farm i was you know when i first kind of looked at it you know there's all this nice grass and there's just these big clumps of multiflora rose everywhere <clears throat> and i kind of looked at the guy and I said you know why why aren't you mowing any of your multiflora rose off like i'm just curious he's like well think about every time you find a rabbit in the winter where are those things at Yep. It seems like they're in multiple rows, chunks in a ditch. So he's got them planted all over the farm, and man, he's got a rabbit. He he wins a tournament by like ten rabbits every year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, man. that's yeah, that's 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 a good point. It, it's good for all for all. So I guess maybe yeah. That, I think multiple yeah, rows absolutely. Might be my favorite non-native. Nick, do you have a favorite non-native? Yeah. Uh, the bummer is we are just in a podcast with a lady that I really respect, 
and she hates this species. Her number one most hated is reed canary, but her <laughs> second most hated is crown vetch. And I yes. kind of like crown vetch. It's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. So that that would probably be my my favorite. And uh, this would be a good time, by the way, to promote our uh, occasional feature on Instagram beautiful weeds <laughs> so ken spent so much time weeding uh which i used to do from like age 10 to 19 Good i was job. so easy easy a 10 year old can do it you hear what he's saying right now <laughs> <laughs> they could uh no <laughs> but uh but ken's out there and, and he's you know, on your iPhone now, you can take a picture of a plant yeah. and then you can click on the little info thing and it tells you what it is. So he's doing that with like every weed he can find. What app he, are you using? It's just uh, the regular camera app. Now you, uh, yeah, really, it's really a picture handy. and there's a little, here's, man, this the is a little info t- like I with a circle at the bottom. Really? Like that, it'll say search plant and then you click on search plant, it tells you what it is. So I've been using picture this. Which I, I heard was good, and then I think Apple just stole it and stuck it on their camera. Really? Works oh, man. Works I've used other apps as well. Um, I used to use Plant Snap all the time, which is a good one too. But, but uh, yeah, the old camera now. Can we pause so I can go outside and take some yeah. pictures of some, some <laughs> yeah, weeds real quick, like in the ditch, figure yeah, out what they is, are? This uh, tech moment brought to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. We are not sponsored by Apple, but it'd be cool if we were. Yeah, <laughs> you out there work for Apple. There's a lot of money in Apple products just laying right here on the table. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, a little plug in there to Apple. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there man. we go. No, uh, yeah, you can. There's all kinds of beautiful non-natives there, and yes, they can be helpful even if they don't really belong here. There's there's some benefit we can we can get from them, and we've also had the conversation of can you really have pristine native prairie? if you don't have all of the players back and we'll never have all the players back because some of them, I believe have gone actually gone extinct or at least their subspecies has. So for instance, the elk, which is, uh, um, uh, native to the prairie ecosystems. Uh, if you're east of the, if you're east of the Mississippi and you're talking about a, a prairie east of the Mississippi. So we'll talk, especially, uh, the prairie state itself, Illinois, you can't ever have back the elk that were there because those elk are extinct. They were an Eastern variety. You might be saying, oh, what about the elk in Kentucky? What about the elk in Pennsylvania? Yes, I know. Those were brought over as Western variety, mm-hmm. and uh, they are they are not genetically the same as the Eastern elk populations. Do you know what the difference was? Um, not specifically between – I mean, they would have – so there's – Ryan, you might be able to help me out here. I think there's like four or five different subspecies of elk. And I don't even know if we class them as, as subspecies or maybe we would just say varieties. I don't know what we would use the term there. But but uh, some of them, there's very stark differences. Like uh, Roosevelt elk are known for having enormous bodies. They're just really big. They're just like a, elk. a moose. That's just yeah, a moose. Yeah, yeah, giant. There, you find those in uh, Alaska and uh, in New Mexico, and they may be in one other state that I can't remember, maybe Utah or something. But um, you have those. But and then there's there's several others, and the others are, the differences are not as stark. Eastern elk, I think, were a little bit smaller bodied though than hmm. like the Rocky Mountain variety. Or have you or, ever hunted elk? I've never hunted elk. I've never hunted elk. One of my uh, one of my best friends. Uh, actually, I'm about to be best man at his wedding. His name's Japheth Mast. Shout out to Japheth. And if you couldn't tell by the name, he grew up Amish. So that's cool. Yeah. No, out in Libby, Montana, which is like this Whoa. tiny little town, and uh, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. But uh, uh, yeah, Amish guy. And and when he was 13, I, I I think I'm remembering the story correctly. I hope I am. Uh, when he was 13 his they needed to kill an elk bad his family did because they didn't have like they i I think they had a not as good of a year on their construction you know because every amish family's got some sort of construction business and uh didn't do as well there and like didn't have a bunch of food and they and he was 13 he killed his first elk for the family like for the winter and that was their food you know imagine that being like do or die so anyways the whole reason we're having this conversation about elk is uh, because 
we can't have exactly what we once had anymore in the case of elk. We can have a different type of elk, right? But it's not the elk that were adapted to the prairie landscape uh, in a lot of our prairie states. And so my point there being, you know, this idea of restoring everything to perfectly native flora and fauna isn't realistic anymore, sadly. You know, so we have to find a way forward. And sometimes part of that way forward can be non-native species. Yes, like pheasants, which we've done so far and has taken the place of the prairie chicken. Can you imagine if there are still prairie chickens around? Bro, that would be our dream. Wouldn't that be so cool? I mean, they are especially the with the price of chicken right things. now. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, my family goes through a lot of chicken. We, so we bring I, back the prairie chicken just yeah. to hunt them to extinction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say. I think that's kind of why they're gone. Aren't but, you? You're like the perfect guy to do it, though, right? Oh you're, man, yeah, maybe. I man, mean, imagine, imagine. Maybe that's my purpose: bring back the prairie chicken. That would be cool. <laughs> I, I mean, your story would be told. So I forever. used to raise quail. So and I kind of got gifted this old quail shit, and that was that was a really fun experience. And I think we're gonna do it again someday. Maybe I'll have to look in. What's the difference in a quail shed and like a chicken shed? Uh, you know, that's a really good question because I just built a chicken coop because I got <laughs> <Yeah>. chickens now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man. Uh, oh, well, so we gotta have a flight pen on a quail shed, right? Yeah. So, um, this was typically just kind of a, a shed that had some. Uh, I was basically open in the middle and I had to separate so you could walk in the shed. Then you had another doorway in front of you that was completely all screened in entry. So you could go in there and I could change their food and their water out. And then off the backside, so it just basically had a a door, a small like a doggy door on the back that the quail could come out through. And I had a, I think it was like eight foot tall by 10 foot long, little flight pen on them. I had a, I initially bought 200 quail and I think. Oh, after the first couple of weeks, I think I was down to about 120. I was like, oh, oh. No, this is a complete failure. <laughs> this is oh. bad. Oh. <laughs> this is, I can't keep these things alive. I don't know the first thing about raising quail. Were they but, just balling up in the corners? Yeah, or? exactly. You know, like I didn't know anything about, you know, keeping the corners rounded yeah. you know, or anything or they were to locate the heat lamp or uh, I had a few get caught in the chicken wire that was out in the flight pen. It was, it was a Classic. rough couple first weeks but man i think we had about i think we ended up releasing um 20 <laughs> actually, i don't even think legally you can say that so oh, i no, won't no. put that part i think dude i would have a heyday with that one <laughs> so, so yeah how many did you end up having I, at the end so i think we ended up having about 120 that we were able to uh work with our dogs with and everything so that That's was cool. really nice and you know there might have been a few wild ones that uh that escaped away and hopefully started some cubbies somewhere else you know <laughs> hopefully they made little quail babies somewhere <laughs> how do they learn to fly if they're just in a cage their whole life i, I don't get that well that, that's i mean what just you're instinct have you ever that? hunted pen raised birds no so like pheasants are really weird um well pheasants are the best example i would say so you can tell if a pheasant's been pen raised especially if you go on some of those big game farms right like up in dakotas where they sell hunts uh they'll fly like 10 20 foot up in the air and it's like they don't know what to do it's (laughs) like oh you just made that shot really easy (laughs) you're not flying across the field and what we're identifying here is you know one of the realistic the very realistic problems that always I mean, it's been documented so many times that affects ground nesting bird species, which, I mean, think about that term there, a ground nesting bird. There's inherent risk with uh, that method of You want to improve young. ground nesting species. The first thing that has to happen is, you know, people need to start trapping again. Yeah. And in order to get that happen, I mean, there has to be money back in the fur market. And yeah. I don't yep. I don't know if that's government control or what there is. No, but. We've we've talked we've talked about it before with um uh just the the example of the raccoon, right? How that population has yes. exploded. And, you know, the, and and what's interesting here is uh, with all the change that the landscape has seen, there's been winners and losers, right? Unfortunately, a lot of the things we cherish have lost maybe not totally out of the battle so to speak or out of the ecosystem some have um, but their populations have been greatly diminished while others even native species have exploded through the changed landscape white-tailed deer would be an example Um, i believe there are more white-tailed deer in uh, america right now than when christopher columbus would have uh, first stepped foot 
in the Americas. You think um, that's because we drove away a bunch of its predators? Or? Oh, yeah. It's all kinds of reasons. I don't think lot. it's – I think it's that, but I think the white-tailed deer has been the one that's been able to evolve the best. Hmm. They, they, you know, I they, think they're they the ones do that – so well with that. They adapt and overcome. Yep. Every, and I mean, corn is – With every is change. Yep, for they them. do well. Yeah, I mean – They do well with corn and soybeans. And yes. The, so there's winners, right, like the white-tailed deer or the raccoon. And uh, that brings back that thing. Okay, if we're going to have this – landscape that's been so heavily tweaked take that back to the conversation about hunting being a important part about of conservation then we got to have some controls put in place to manage these populations and what ryan's talking about is a very real problem uh, because raccoons are predators and they're predators to ground nesting birds and that kind of comes full circle here when we go back to uh the problem with reestablishing a ground nesting bird ted cook i believe nick told talked about this mm-hmm. just so often the programs don't work when you try and reintroduce pen raised birds back to the landscape because of the very thing ryan just talked about they don't have that instinct to to thrive they don't they don't have the evasion of predator instinct they don't have right. the, they don't know how to f- go find food during you know after we get an inch of of ice that rains down on the on it covering the ground they don't know where to go peck around for food or or uh sometimes how to not die from exposure and freeze to death you know yeah they've completely lost that mothering ability right what what teaches them to survive exactly exactly and so if we're going to see like a prairie chicken population back in Iowa, i really believe that we're going to have to Habitat's going to be number one. We got to have more prairie if we're going to have prairie chickens. And I think our best way to do that is going to be bridging the gaps where we do have suitable habitat, where we have wild, you know, a few remaining wild prairie chickens left in the landscape. I, mean, I think there might be some in uh, Nebraska, Say way western Nebraska, maybe yeah. like very southwest South Dakota. I think you're right on that. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that where that na- native grassland stretches. Yeah, down through yeah, Nebraska's. I think there, there's some yeah. in those those areas, and and maybe even some down in Kansas. But if we could kind of refill in those gaps and create a big enough strip back to Iowa, then maybe we could start seeing some again, and that would be fantastic. Or maybe do something similar to what we did with wild turkeys. Believe it or not. Iowa was turkeyless not that long ago, and uh, they tried. This is really when we started to figure out that this pen release business doesn't work so well, and they tried with just getting some, you know, pen raised turkeys, throwing them back out in their natural habitat, and they were getting eaten immediately. And uh, um, they uh, they then tried getting wild birds that they trapped, and would you know, bring them from like Minnesota or Wisconsin or something to bring them back to, to, uh, Iowa. But those, those ecosystems that they were coming from being trapped out of were not similar enough to what Iowa is. So then when they got here, they didn't know how to hack it. Well, then they learned, okay, we got to find a place that's as similar to Iowa as possible. When they did that, I think they got birds from uh, Missouri. Those birds stuck around because they had that experience that matched their ecosystem that they're being released into. So if we do that, if we, if we're going to have prairie chickens back, we can take some of those things that we've learned about it. But most importantly, it just comes down to having habitat because even if we did get prairie chickens here, do you guys think we would be able to keep them here now? No, no, no. We have way not. too many bobcats, coons. Yeah. yeah. yeah too many. And no, prairie, no, and, habitat. And no, no habitat. Oh, There's okay. just no prairie. And, and I shouldn't say none. That's that's too much of a, a pessimistic attitude. We do have some, but we need more. And, and well, it's uh, just it's a management of the the native ecosystem, right? Yep, and, yeah. You know, it's uh, right now you have a very large uh, bird nesting predator population. Yep. You know, like prime example, our farm. You know, a uh, farm I used to turkey hunt on was one of probably the greatest turkey honey holes I've ever been on. I mean, the first year I started turkey hunting, I had 13 gobblers. Wow. Me. wow. I mean, it was insane. And then as the years went on, I mean, I'd only kill one bird a year off it, right? And uh, 
because I kind of wanted to leave it alone. And now I think there's one turkey left in that area that we've consistently been seeing. But there's, I know the the coon population is you know, huge on that farm there. Yep. There's consistently, because we, we put trail cameras out to kind of, yep. you know, take inventory of the turkey population, what's out right, there, right? right? And it's not uncommon to see, we're seeing two or three bobcats in one picture. Wow. Wow. I mean, so to have those predators running that area, I mean, yeah, you're not going to bring uh, – it's hard to bring a wild turkey back, let alone a prairie chicken back in right. those uh, areas right. like right. that, you yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot of truth to that. And and Ryan was talking earlier, too, about the fur market and how that really served as motivation for a long time for for humans to be involved in the management of, of raccoon populations. Um, you know, coon hides just used to be a lot more valuable. You're talking, I believe – I think I've heard before that that coon hide prices reached as high as maybe like twenty dollars a hide. Yeah. Um. In the not 80, that long ago. Yeah. Seventies, eighties, yeah. and I mean that's seventies and eighties money. Imagine yeah. what that value'd be. You're talking like a hundred bucks. Yeah. And, and people bucks. were people were that were really active with it paying their way through college and buying new trucks and, and i have heard some rumblings and they're very distant rumblings but like a, a push towards government spending of like a voucher for like coon pelts right oh so, sure. they, uh, so uh, almost like a lower the yeah almost like a depredation bounty yeah or something exactly like that. you know man like, did you guys know i think in the 1920s australia declared war on the emu and they did the same thing they like paid any farmer money oh, really to really bring in an emu yeah, because emus were such a terror. They were so overpopulated. Can you imagine if you're a young, like, 13, 14-year-old kid listening to this podcast right now, but, hey, I can go spend time in the outdoors, and the government would pay me to go yeah. spend time doing what I love doing? I mean, not all for government handouts, but that's an easy yeah. way to make some money. <laughs> yeah, here. right. Yeah. Well, there, there's a difference in a government handout and the people paying you through sure. the government. Yeah, I mean, we, absolutely. We talk about this all the time. I used to be so upset about, like, man, our business is propped up by government spending and yeah my dad had to explain it to me no it's propped up by people wanting clean air clean water yeah. good soil that's a good to way to explain it yeah. yeah and and so people if they're not willing to pay it's just from a lack of education because usually you know yeah. and, and they'd rather use their money for that than for a few other things i shouldn't say government list, spending. You know? say well use taxpayer dollars yeah there yeah. you go yeah. dude yeah, yeah. <laughs> i yeah, I I tell a lot of my friends like I have no issue paying taxes. Absolutely, it's, there's nothing nothing wrong with paying your taxes. It's all wrong with how it gets spent. You know, if there's any issue with how it gets spent, that's that that's a great that's a great spot to uh, transition us now talking about money, right? And uh, what's interesting is the three of us right now we're kind of living the dream. We get paid to work in the conservation circle, which is uh, so I tell people all the time I pinch myself every day. You know, just just being able to do that, but I think there's like there's a lot of good from that. You know, I, I don't think it's there's anything wrong with somebody profiting off of conservation. Obviously, that's that's how I get paid, right? But uh, I think there's a danger there though too, right? Uh, sometimes I think just like in anything that starts off as, you know working for the cause, right? The, the people who, or, or organizations who maybe get so caught up in the financial side of it, you know, looking at, at the bottom line and seeing that, wow, there could be a lot gained here financially. You almost kind of lose sight of the mission for the monetization of conservation. Right. And, or any issue or any cause for that matter. Right. So I guess Ryan, one, one final thing we'd like to get your input on is how does somebody who's maybe working in a similar situation to us, another company out there, how do they keep the main thing, the main thing and not just turn into another thing that's out here just to, to make money. Like there, there's not something that's uh uh, a real, a real cause to keep fighting for. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the, the, the greatest thing to remember is, you know, still working all towards one goal and conservation, you know, being able to make sure that, you know, the, the, our kids and our generations of what's coming when, while we're gone, still have something to be able to do what we, what our passions are, you know, mm -hmm. it might not, whether it might not be our direct uh, lineage, um, 
direct kids. Um, you know, maybe my, you know, my daughter may not like to hunt at all. or like to be in the outdoors at all, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe her kids will, right. you know, and that's something that, you know, I look forward to, to make sure that they have that opportunity to, you know, and, and there is things, you know, that costs, uh, unfortunately more than what we would like to spend on mm-hmm. some dollars. And, you know, that's where I look with work with some of my clients, you know, what's okay. What's our year one goals. What's our year two goals. Yeah. what's our year uh, three goals you know when, where do we want to see this farm in 10 years you know you can do a lot um with a little bit of money mm-hmm. on your farm and conservation practices you know i talked to uh i see some examples of people and, and nothing against this by any means but you know they drop fifteen hundred dollars and setting up a new bow every year mm-hmm. you know how far fifteen hundred dollars will go on your yeah. farm and conservation practices yeah. that yeah. are going to produce better results more of what you're wanting on your farm than that new bow will give you and i'm not saying you know it's nothing against going and buying new hunting equipment absolutely i mean my bow's five years old you know it's probably time for an upgrade here in a couple of years but you know, I'd rather spend, you know, my time, effort and hard earned dollars, you know, in improving the habitat on my farm. Yeah. And that'll, that'll yield way greater, greater return on investment than that, uh, that new bow or, you know, all the cool gasmas and gizmos you can see every year at the, at the deer class. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's great perspective. You know, it's almost the same poison that, that we see all the time, right? Materialism infiltrates and, and gets us distracted from, from that main, target and and really it's hard to find an area that has suffered more than conservation at the hand of materialism i mean it it really does come down to that and so um you know if if you're in that space working in that space i mean i'm preaching to myself right here um you got to remember to keep the main thing the main thing there which is yeah is is we're doing this to try and and you know improve the wild places and and even uh the places that may not seem so wild anymore you know like uh our big backyard prairie initiative that we talk about all the time the goal to be in 10,000 backyards by the summer of 2023 is is uh something that's very real to us and that includes yards of of you know out in you know the the little slice of heaven on the the back 40 or something like that or uh somebody's you know little tenth of an acre in town somewhere yeah you know we want we want to see a landscape that has as much prairie on it as is needed and um that that happens every little bit at a time and and it's going to come from maintaining that purpose in our minds for why we do what we do and it just can't be the bottom line because that's when we start to drift back to materialism and if you spend your time in materialism you're spending your time once again harming conservation in some way or just like ryan mentioned maybe sometimes it's just missing out on an opportunity to to do more so very well said nicholas it's getting late man it is getting late all We've three of two us podcasts today all three of us <laughs> g- gotta gotta get uh Smiles logged in tonight, <laughs> but but uh, um, we, we want to thank you so much, Ryan, for again yes, driving up dude, here. Absolutely, my pleasure to be here. And for anybody that wants to, you know, kind of follow along on some of the yeah, things yeah, yeah. How do how do people find you? Tom? Yeah, so it's uh, Bryson Wildlife and Land Management on uh, Facebook, and then uh, my ugly mug is really trying hard to do TikToks, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm like that old guy that's not up to up to speed with all the tech of creating TikToks. But it's uh, at Bryson Wildlife on TikTok, and there I go, go through a lot more of the day to day stuff on farms there. Sure, try to grow that. So absolutely. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, go go and follow this guy. I we got to have a little more conversation behind the scenes with them, and he's just as good of a guy as you could imagine uh, being around or interacting with or following. So go follow go follow him. He uh, uh, has a lot to add and has a lot of really good thoughts to add to not only conservation but just life as a whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more, Nick. Well. Once again, as uh, Ryan is showing us, conservation happens one yard at a time.